You know, we've all been taught since we were little that you need milk for strong bones, you need milk to be big and strong. And yet, when we look around the world, the people who are the healthiest and live the longest don't have milk as part of their traditional cultures. They didn't need it at all. The dairy myth has really pervaded uh, Western countries, and it's kind of hard to get it out of your mind. And the reason is that dairy is in front of you all the time. It's huge business. The products are promoted. There are promotions that involve the U.S. government. And today we're going to tackle all of that, and you're going to learn about some surprising ways the dairy industry has marketed its products. You'll learn how to avoid the pitfalls, and we're going to give you some also some healthy tips for dairy alternatives to keep you healthy. Uh, today we're going to hear from PCRM's Vice President for Legal Affairs, Mark Kennedy, and he's going to talk with weight loss champion Chuck Carroll all about dairy. Here's Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Barnard. You are listening to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, on Twitter at Chuck Carroll, WLC, WLC standing for weight loss champion. Also works on Instagram. Follow me there as well. But the show is what is important. And there is nothing more important today than talking about dairy. We call this episode The Dangers of Dairy. Very important because that's a very important topic. Dairy, not the healthiest thing that you can put in your body. And by not the most healthy thing, I literally mean that quite possibly could be the not healthiest thing you can put in your body. We'll be talking about the nutrition aspect of that a little bit later with registered dietitian Allie Lunning from upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. But we start with the gentleman making his podcast debut, and he is the vice president of legal affairs here at the Physicians Committee. We welcome to the program Mark Kennedy. How are you, Mark? Great. I'm glad to be here. It is an absolute honor to have you here as well. Um, You know the inside story with this. While Allie will talk nutrition, you have been busy digging up the dirt on the dairy industry and how the government and big restaurants are working together. Really, the the sexiest part of all this is to get us to eat more cheese. That's one of the big things that I've talked about in the past with Dr. Barnard. But I I want to start with this, Perry Mason. I guess you can call me Paul Drake for this episode, which is doing some investigation. What is the history here of the dairy industry's involvement with the government and the ties there? How does all of this work? It goes back a long way. Uh, we'll be talking about checkoff programs. That's kind of the shorthand lingo. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind a checkoff program is that once upon a time to participate in it, you literally checked off a box on like a tax return. Hmm. But um, this is, that's way back, almost 100 years ago, when industries who sold generic products were worried that people would go to the store and buy the wrong product. So if I sell something that's totally bland and generic, like sugar, and I make a commercial or an advertisement for it, well, someone's not really going to remember. and People don't have like a, a preference for one sugar over the other. And uh, so th- you know, this is like a generic commodity, basically. So people would band together and sell advertisements just band together the money uh, for advertising campaigns. Right. And so um, some of those were voluntary at first, but what was happening was you'd have free riders. Mm-hmm. So um, every all, a whole bunch of people put their money together, make some ads, but the people who didn't participate, they also benefit from it. So eventually they became mandatory. Right. And it was during the Great Depression that the federal government got involved with 
commodity marketing and you know it was to help the industries during the Great Depression, of course, everybody was having trouble. It was much later that the federal government started doing these things called the federal checkoff programs, and those are mandatory programs that promote certain industries and you know, there are about uh, two dozen right now. The milk and dairy checkoff programs, they're actually one for each. So, oh, really? Yes. So you have a dairy product checkoff program that it came to be in about 19... It was authorized in 1983, came to be in 1984. And then the fluid milk dairy checkoff... I'm sorry, the fluid milk checkoff program was authorized in 1990 and began in 1993. And the idea was that it wasn't enough for the federal government to be overseeing advertising for dairy in general. There actually needed to be more advertising targeted just for uh, fluid milk. Did, did that coincide at all? I don't have the timeline in front of me, and maybe you don't know this. This is kind of a curveball. Did that coincide at all with the release of the food pyramid and all of that? Because fluid milk, if I recall, is pretty close to the top there. It's um, In a way, all these things are related. But what was happening was uh, the for the creation of these programs in which Congress says everybody who's within the industry has to pour their money into a big pot and then some overseeing entity will just issue advertising on behalf of the whole industry. They came about initially because the producers in the industry thought that their markets were failing. And so you had bad sales statistics for dairy products starting in about the 60s. And then even with the addition of the dairy checkoff program in the mid-80s, they still felt that they just weren't – actually, the, the phrasing, if I recall correctly, was that sales were lagging for mm. milk. Mm. Um, in the late 80s, so they, they created this separate thing. Which I guess makes sense because then just a few years later, you see this just all-out ad blitz pushing milk, you know, uh, does a body good, drink milk, the whole milk mustache right. campaign and yes. all, all of that good stuff. So the timing there seems to seems to match up. It does. And, you know, I've, I've talked mostly about the federal programs, but there are state programs too, and the California – dairy checkoff. I'm not really sure of its exact name, but it actually initiated some of the more popular ones that were picked up by the federal program. So if I'm not mistaken, milk does the body good. And one other popular one came initially from California. And then the federal government said, wow, that's a that's a great tagline to help us and used it as well. Now, since we're talking about the campaigns, one of the bigger ones it wasn't that long ago. You would open up a magazine. You would see on the TV like it was. You could hardly go anywhere with seeing celebrities with the milk mustaches right. on there. And um, I believe one in particular. It started to advertise also like drinking milk could help you lose weight. And I believe that our crack researchers here kind of dug into that a little bit and found that to be false. And that's kind of where you and your staff over there in legal pick up. That's the right. That's right. This stuff came to PCRM's attention. It really in the mid '90s, Dr. Barnard started filing small-scale petitions to the FTC, saying, "You know, your your milk advertising scheme is crazy." And he was specifically looking at milk mustache in the mid '90s, and that carried through for about the next five years. And they were saying, "You know, it helps with hypertension and a whole bunch of other things." And so we started submitting to the USDA these uh, federal. Freedom of Information Act requests, and we just started getting tons of information, you know, contracts and other promotion schemes and presentations. And the whole, the whole theme of this stuff was that 
as opposed to what we would think of as generic advertising, like what you were saying, you know, milk does a body good, or there's another one called Behold, the Power of Cheese. <laughs> uh, and the idea originally was, you know, these ads would just show a generic carton that might say milk or, you know, a, a thing that just says cheese. But in the late 90s, and, and I, I realize I'm kind of wandering off uh, the question a little bit, but in the late 90s, we started seeing that the Dairy Checkoff was actually partnering with specific companies, fast food companies, restaurants, to um, identify industry trendsetters. And the idea was that if you could get Pizza Hut or Burger King or Wendy's or Taco Bell or McDonald's to jam more cheese into the burgers or the pizzas or the fajitas or, or quesadillas or whatever, um, you would boost the entire industry. And then other restaurants would fall in line. Right, And so... The and um, the dairy checkoff program started funneling money to these restaurants and saying to the rest, going to the restaurants and saying, "Hey, we will pay you up to a hundred thousand dollars if you let us propose new products to you, and mm-hmm. then we'll do some focus group testing, and you can sell all these great products because of us." We're going to come back to that. Uh, that is that is really kind of what the 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 chief portion of this segment is going to be because the stuff that you guys unearthed is just mind-blowing. And again, just as you couldn't turn on the TV without seeing those milk mustache campaigns, you definitely can't turn on the TV today, any program, and not see the effects of exactly what it is that you're talking about. But going back to the milk mustache campaign here, Mark, when the Physicians Committee got involved, we actually played a role in, in kind of stopping that campaign, did we not? It wasn't that one. But so what we did was we grabbed all these records, got them all through the federal government. And that's what showed us what the dairy industry was up to in terms of these brand-specific, restaurant-specific ads. Right. And we just kept up every year. We would submit a new FOIA request um, now that we understood how much information that you could get. And in 2003 or so, we got this whole other batch of documents on – Something called um, – I, I don't quite remember the name of the meeting, but basically around 2001, a whole bunch of industry uh, representatives got together and the idea – and I'm going to read you the phrase because it's, it's fascinating. There was a presentation by the dairy industry and it said that they had joined forces to address the opportunity – presented by the obesity epidemic. Mm-hmm. This was a joint joint strategy meeting, and it was sponsored and organized by both the milk and the dairy checkoff programs. And what they did was they were talking about how we can develop emerging science that will show, supposedly, <laughs> that consuming dairy will help you lose weight. Mm-hmm. And this was what we called the Dairy Weight Loss Campaign, and it went on for several years. And yes, uh, at the time, and this was you know around 2005, 2006, everywhere you looked, it was a different advertising campaign. Not so much the milk mustache anymore, but everybody's saying, look, if you consume three servings of dairy per day, you're going to lose weight. And you know the ads were on everything, yogurt, milk, cheese. Everybody started jumping in. And I mean the, one of the most insane ones um, – <laughs> was a craft ad that, if I recall correctly, was just a block of cheese with the words burn fat right on it. Nice. Something completely ridiculous. And what we found from our Freedom of Information Act request at the time was that all of these advertising campaigns, which were being pumped out by these government programs, the dairy checkoff and the fluid milk checkoff, were based on 
one person's research. Right. And this guy was named Dr. Michael Zemmel. And he did a lot of small studies, and often his reports were just abstracts. He didn't always reveal what the calorie intake was. So what you discovered by really digging in sometimes was that for people who were in his studies, well, you know, maybe they were exercising or maybe they had cut overall calorie intake by, say, hundreds of calories. And so he's using a couple of different, you know, techniques to get to a result, which was either weight management or even weight loss. And overall, what we found was nobody could replicate the studies. And for the most part, everything about it was false. And we did a number of things starting in 2005, which was right when I came on board here at the Physicians Committee. Well, okay. Okay. Well, hold on. So basically what you're saying about these studies is like milk was essentially kind of from what we're surmising here played a very small role in whatever the numbers were that were appearing on the scales. It seems to me like you could switch out dairy and, you know, insert something like um, a chocolate chip cookie. That's right. If you cut, you know, a quarter of your calories per day and took in three servings of whatever, right. you'll probably lose some weight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there were a lot of other features of it that made it um, largely not true. Right. So you come on board 2005, you get involved, and you've picked up on all of these studies, and what happens? We did three things all in 2005. We filed a petition with the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and we said, look, this advertising is totally false. And the FTC regulates ads in print or on the radio or on TV. And then we filed a petition with the FDA, which regulates product labeling for certain things. And we also filed a lawsuit against these same companies, you know, some of the companies who were doing these advertisements I told you about, and also against the industry companies that were behind it, including Dairy Management Inc., which is the corporation that actually carries out the dairy checkoff program. Right. And so, you know, we have all these things going on at once. And there was a point in the lawsuit when we went to court and we had our small legal team here. We had three people. And on the other side, there were 14 lawyers. And <laughs> it, it, each one has to go up and introduce, you know, give their name to the judge and everything and say their affiliation. And so, you know, for each of the companies we had sued, there were one or two attorneys. And then you had the Department of Justice stepping in on behalf of the government because of the government's role in actually creating and funding the advertising schemes through the dairy checkoff and the milk checkoff. So you're going up against not only big business, but now you've got the DOJ and there's only three three of you? There are, right. Total David versus Goliath It was scenario. ridiculous, you know, looking across the room and seeing them all. And I guess one thing I hadn't really talked about earlier is that these these campaigns, these advertising campaigns, it's... They're funded by what what the industry calls an assessment. It's right. basically a tax. And so you have everybody in the country who is a producer of whatever commodity it is. And like I said, there are some things like a certain kind of avocado has a checkoff industry, um, checkoff program. But, of course, the milk, the dairy, and some of the other ones are the very biggest, um, like beef and pork and things. Sure. And so because they are government-overseen programs and the funding is mandated by the federal government – the USDA is basically almost like a, a, a service supporting company for the industry. 
And when there are legal problems, of course, the USDA isn't known for its legal department. So the Department of Justice comes in. Right. And um, all of this gets paid by this collection of money that goes into this gigantic pot. Um, And so what you had was a very strong government presence, even when we're targeting an obviously fake ad by a company like Kraft. Mm -hmm. And so it was – yeah, so it was very much David and Goliath, like you said. So we had all these things going on at once in 2005. And, you know, lawsuits take a while to run through. And I'm sad to say the FDA petition didn't really go anywhere. But the FTC petition, which covered the vast majority of the advertisements that people saw, that succeeded. Mm-hmm. And it was a very subtle form of success. But what we got eventually was a letter from the FTC. And it said, you know, we looked into your petition and we met with the dairy checkoff and we talked about the science and the checkoff program has agreed to stop running the ads for now until there's more evidence of milk's role in weight loss. And, you know, that was well over a decade ago. We're still waiting for that evidence right. to show. Right. Uh, you know, the idea in the letter was that they had just had a nice conversation and that the dairy and the the USDA programs had, had come together and just voluntarily closed it down because you really can't have one agency telling the other you're full of it. Right. So it was presented as just a nice discussion and something that might resume, but it never has because, of course, it, it can't. Mm-hmm. It's not true. Yeah, there's no there's no science to support it except for that the the studies that you were talking about earlier the the one researcher and I believe that the number of subjects actually in those studies correct me if I'm wrong I mean we're in a tiny room and I believe you could fit everybody in here that's right very small sub like uh, I guess the research say a very small n yeah um, the number yeah. of persistence. All right, so uh, here's what I want to do. We're running a little bit long here. Uh, No, no, this is great. Um, I'm going to hit pause on this. We're going to come back in just a second. We're going to dive into uh, the actual partnerships. You're going to be astonished by the restaurants that are in bed with the DMI and the dairy industry um, and, and the crazy effect that this is having and why, as I said earlier, you can't turn on the TV, you can't open a magazine with, without seeing the effect of this program. Uh, Mark, don't go anywhere. We're going to bring on Allie Lunning right now. We'll talk about some nutrition. We'll bring you back on in just a little bit. We'll wrap things up. You're continuing to listen to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. The weight loss champion Chuck Carroll here with you all about the dangers of dairy. Just uh, had a nice segment there with Mark Kennedy kind of breaking down our VP of Legal Affairs here at the Physicians Committee, kind of breaking down the link between the dairy industry and the government. The ties there are extraordinary. And stick around because we're bringing him back. And I'm telling you. The specific promotions that come out of the government's ties to the dairy industry are staggering. The effect that they have on McDonald's, on Wendy's, Burger King, Pizza Hut, Domino's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is unbelievable. The foods that you eat, directly related to what it is that we're going to be talking about. But that is the legal end of things. Of course, the big deal is... Why is dairy so dangerous? What makes dairy dangerous? Does it really do a body good? 
you've been listening to this podcast or followed the Physicians Committee, you already know the answer to that, but I will pose it nonetheless to registered dietitian from upstairs, Allie Lunning from the Barnard Medical Center. Hello, Allie. Hey, Chuck. Milk, does it really do a body good? Yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are uh that's a that's a pretty loaded question too depending on who you ask. Right. But, you know, here in the in our kind of neck of the woods, we've learned too much. Right. No. You can't unknow this stuff. <laughs> Some things can't be unseen. That's Some right. things can't be unlearned. Exactly. Um you know, we grow up as kids, and I mean, these guys are just marketing geniuses in the milk and the dairy industries because the slogan that we all know, milk does a body good. And we also know that, or we're taught, I should say, is that you need milk to have strong bones, and strong bones come from calcium, and calcium is in milk. And that, you know, you assume that that is really the only place that you get it. Uh, I mean, we don't really need milk to get calcium. Come on, Allie. Right. You know, just because that one kind of thought bubble made sense to a lot of different, uh, you know, healthcare providers. Oh, yes. A plus B equals C. Calcium mm -hmm. is in milk. Therefore, milk is a nutri nutritious food that everyone should consume. But calcium is a mineral. Right. Calcium is a naturally occurring mineral, and it's in so many different living things. Right. Uh, anything that comes from the ground. I think that the way that Dr. Barnard explains it mm -hmm. is cows don't produce calcium. Right. Cows eat right. calcium just as we can eat the calcium. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, calcium fortified or not even fortified. I mean, you can get calcium in like any fruit and vegetable, like broccoli right, has calcium, right. kale has calcium. A fun fact, I know that in a previous episode, I had asked what bean has the largest amount of calcium. There we go. Found an answer during one of our uh, BMC group classes that uh -huh. are available once a week. <laughs> um, and it was... Um, it was black-eyed peas. Black-eyed peas? Black-eyed peas. I only eat those on uh, New Year's Day right. for good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so they should be a staple. Black-eyed huh? peas. The beans and greens, they really do it for you. Uh, I don't. I wonder why that is. What is it that the black-eyed pea has that, you know, say a black bean does not? Right. Yeah. Just as its composition, I suppose, you know, that's a question to get a, a a professional gardener on here to answer. All right. So if you've got a green thumb, that's ccarol at ccrm.org. Um, now I need to know why. Uh, back to dairy. No, seriously, you've, you remember those uh, advertisements growing up where, you know, it'd be like a little kid and it'd be like, you know, I'm only this big now, but, you know, when I grow up and blah, blah, blah. So it, it graduates from this little teeny tiny scrawny junior all the way up to this Herculean bodybuilder type. And, it, you know, all this happened. I've got all these muscles now because I drank milk. Mm -hmm. The message there is that milk is especially important for kids. Again. Yeah. Yeah, no. Milk consumption doesn't improve bone integrity. It doesn't improve, um, you know, the body's ability to overall grow in general other, in place, other than in places that we actually don't want things to keep growing. So what I was looking at earlier was the uh, relationship between dairy, in, uh, increase of dairy in um, milk and their IGF-1, mm -hmm. so the insulin growth like uh insulin like growth factor right um and that 
hormone continued in consumption in large volumes over a period of time can cause some cellular growth abnormalities. Cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. Okay. That, that's, <laughs> we're just going to kind of run down. No, you're, you're jumping all over the place, yeah. which is cool. Um, but for children, for, 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 for kids. Yeah. But then you're, you're a woman too. And I know osteoporosis is something that a lot of women are concerned about. And what's the thing that, you know, they say, well, you need calcium to offset that. And well, you get calcium from milk again, not the case. So, um, particularly dangerous uh, for for women like what what's the story there yeah so uh, one example to kind of use as a reference for this is that there is a study done the Harvard nurse health study mm-hmm. it followed 72,000 women for 18 years mm-hmm. that's a long time and that's a lot of people yeah it is it showed that there was no protective effect of increased milk consumption on fracture risk mm-hmm. however that that statistic is being given all the time to drink more milk to sure. reduce uh, fracture risk or to decrease risk for osteoporosis. Right. Um, calcium is milk. Milk is calcium. But um, if, if that's not exactly the case, how can a woman reduce her risk then of developing osteoporosis if not for dairy intake? Um, another way to reduce risk of osteoporosis is significantly decreasing your sodium intake. Right. So if somebody's typically consuming fast foods or packaged foods, pre-made things, those would be top things that I would begin to decrease in order to improve my bone health. Gotcha. They don't say that. That's a lot of words. That's not an easy slogan to market. No. Um, and so increasing your other otherwise healthy sources of dietary calcium like kale, greens, beans, like specifically our black eyed peas. Yeah. Um, and exercise. Shocker. Seriously. Exercise is the most effective way to increase bone density and decrease risk of osteoporosis. So again, uh, anything diet related to health, it it comes down to what? Diet and exercise. It just Keeps doing that. <laughs> Keeps doing that. Uh, calcium, that's the biggie. The other biggie, vitamin D. Mm, yeah. And of course. Yeah, the only place you're going to get vitamin D is in your milk, so drink yeah. it. Yeah. No. And I've had a lot of patients that will very defensively say, once we've read that their vitamin D levels are low, they go, but I drink so much milk, or I have drank milk, vitamin D milk specifically. Um, but there is a really big uh, misinformation there. Only 10 to 15% of the vitamin D that's in the, the milk is, uh, ten, wait, 10 to 15% of dietary calcium is absorbed. Uh, wait, wait. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it, it's all right. I, th- I think that you're getting confused. I think I know that the, the study that you're saying there is that uh, without adequate amounts of vitamin D, only 10 to 15 percent of calcium is absorbed in the body. Right, right. So I, I guess, <laughs> see, who, who did their homework? Yeah, too? Who yeah. did their homework? Right. Um, so, so again, 
So you need it. You're right. Yeah. You know, milk, calcium, vitamin D. Yeah. But you can get your vitamin D from other sources. Right. And the the only the best place to really get it is from the sunlight. And Shocker. you know, we're we're in North America here. Um they are we're super far from the equator. It is very common for folks to have lower than optimal numbers there. Right. So um I would say that of course, you know, going outside five to fifteen minutes per day can be enough during the summertime and during the winter that's where we benefit most from increasing our intake or of making our availability uh higher of mm-hmm. fortified foods right. like cereals grains breads orange juice uh soy milk and rice milk they will have those additions of vitamin d okay um true or false Here's another something that I thought was just mind-blowing as I'm doing this research. Um, There are only a handful of foods, natural foods, mind you, that actually contain a lot of vitamin D. Yeah. Yeah. True. So that is true. Yeah. There are not a lot of foods that naturally contain it. As far as the ones that I remember from most of my culinary stuff, it, it was mushrooms. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Mushrooms, they contain vitamin D2. Okay. So it's not the form that is most often used for supplementation. Uh-huh. Uh, but hey, more mushrooms. Right on. Yeah. And here's another one. True or false? Uh, dairy products without fortification contain zero amounts of vitamin D. True. Wow. Wow. Simple as that. See, that's that effective marketing. So the only way that you're going to get vitamin D through food is when it's fortified. Yeah. So I guess we're assuming like, yeah, you know, breakfast cereals, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Cheerios, Total, Life, mm-hmm. all of those things, fortified. They've got our backs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and see, that's a whole other thing that we just – maybe we'll come back and we'll do a full show on, on – cereals, uh, breakfast cereals, but the fact that because they fortify these things with the vitamins and the minerals that we need, they call them healthy, but they're forgetting the fact that it's all heavily processed, contains copious amounts of sugar, like Mm. nutrient densities. Everything is kind of marketed as this is healthier than, you know, it's healthier than sugar cereal, Mm -hmm. but doesn't doesn't make that a health food. No. Yeah. No, it does not. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're uh, we're going to push pause here on this segment. We're going to come back. We're going to tape another one uh, specifically about why you don't want to drink dairy uh, or consume dairy at all, whether it be milk, cheese, any form of dairy product. Um, talked a little bit about the true false. We've debunked some myths. But now we're going to get into the nitty gritty, the things that we all ask about, because I know like we're just running the gamut, everything from heart disease to any number of cancers, right? Oh, yeah. All right. So this is the exam room podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Welcome back to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I'm the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Dangers of dairy. That is the topic at hand. And uh, we just talked a little bit about uh, the myths about drinking milk and, and dairy and why it really does not do a body good. Now we're actually going to get into, well, 
this is why it doesn't do a body good. As a matter of fact, this is why it does a lot of harm to the body. Uh, Allie Lunning, registered dietitian from the Barnard Medical Center, still here on the program with me. And dairy, Allie, as you know, is just tied to a whole host of health problems, cardiac issues, cancer. I, I mean, like the, we could sit here and just like list it all afternoon. Um, but let's let's touch on the biggies first because uh, I know for a fact that the fat found in dairy has a really bad adverse impact on heart health. Right, right. So the fat that's in, found in dairy has a large percentage of that fat is saturated. Mm-hmm. That big capital S. Um, So the saturated fat and the large amounts of cholesterol can increase uh, somebody's risk for uh, heart disease. And that's not just in in milk. I mean, think about it like cheese. You know, we've had Dr. Barnard on the show to talk about cheese. Um, Yogurt. Anything, really. Um, and, and, And there have been like studies that show that just by eliminating uh, certain things from your diet, going on a plant-based diet, I mean, we're, we're not just talking about a small drop in the risk <laughs> of heart disease. I mean, we're talking about like, that's a mind-blowing kind of number here, right? Yeah. You know the study I'm talking so about. So in 2014, there was a study that was done and they eliminated meat, dairy, and added oils from the diet. Mm-hmm. Guess what percentage of patients had improvements well i know so <laughs> yeah i, I mean I, <laughs> no I, I mean what to the you? listener guess 81 percent 81 percent that's beyond the effectiveness of medications that are being marketed on a regular basis right 81 percent of patients improved their symptoms and experienced fewer complications by changing their diet Right. That's the stuff I live for. I, 80, I mean, four out of five, 81%, like that's that's serious. Should be first-line treatment. Right. And, you know, doctors tout that 10% from a, a prescription bottle as, you know, just like a miracle. Wow, this drug helps to decrease, um, you know, cholesterol by 10 to 30% right. within six months. Right. But in this, those six months, that's more time that the heart is not getting adequate blood flow. Right. That is more time that your your kidneys, your eyes, your your nerves are not getting adequate blood flow. Mm-hmm. That's time we want back. And, and think about this too. You know, even if it doesn't fully reverse heart disease, how much your quality of life will improve? Right. How much better you will feel? Like it just to me. It just seems to make all the sense in the world to to switch to a plant-based diet, but I'm on a soapbox and right. we must continue. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's not just heart disease, though. Uh, the the other big thing here is uh, is the big casino, cancer. Mm. Um, very serious topic, and just as we found with heart disease and diabetes, I mean, there's a big link between dairy consumption and forms of cancer. In particular, what forms of cancer uh, is dairy known to most impact? Uh, the reproductive types of cancers. So breast cancer and prostate cancer are really high on the list. Uh, let's start with the uh, with the prostate cancer because, um, well, I don't know. You're the expert here. <laughs> what, what's the link there? Specifically, what in dairy, what in milk causes this increased risk of prostate cancer? So this increased risk of prostate cancer has been tied to the 
a high amount of insulin-like growth factor, or IGF-1. Mm. Um, and that's found in cow's milk. Uh, so the, the issue is that over time, those who have an increased consumption of that in their body, let's say more than two and a half servings of dairy products per day, compared with less than a half a serving per day, there was an increased risk of cancer in 21,000 people. 21,000. 21,000 people had a higher risk of prostate cancer with more than two servings of dairy products per day. That's not a small sample size. No. Um, it is a bunch of people. And to say that more than two and a half servings of dairy products per day, well, that's that's what is recommended when you ask somebody who has studied very diligently the my plate and the USDA food pyramid. <laughs> um, we're going to encourage folks to consume about three servings of dairy products a day, but you know, low fat dairy. Uh, of course, uh, I, there's no difference between low fat dairy and uh, full fat dairy uh, when it comes to the the risks of these diseases. The IGF one, yeah, yeah. Skim milk, whole milk. <laughs> Again, you're not doing your body good. Uh, what about for women? Um, because, as you just said, breast cancer is another big one here. Is it the same thing? Is it the IGF-1 or is there something else at play here? So for breast cancer, um, we really want to kind of think about what, what is milk made out of. It mm -hmm. is made out of uh, the milk produced for baby cow. And so therefore, that milk has a lot of estrogen in it. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of folks, as soon as I might recommend a plant-based diet, the first thing they might assume is that soy is a risk factor and increases your estrogen levels. But milk is literally drinking estrogen. So the consumption of these milk and dairy products contributes to about 60 to 70 percent of estrogen in the in the diet. Are you, are you serious? Like more than half of the estrogen that is consumed comes from dairy products, dairy products. Wow. And, you know, there is a big alert, you know, going on with kids get, uh, going through. Um, puberty so much earlier and there are women going through menopause so much earlier and these types of uh, these female pro uh, reproductive uh, cancers are becoming extremely problematic uh, when they s investigate why and what we could do with our diet there were there was research that found that even as little as a half of a serving a day of dairy products increase the risk of breast cancer significantly. And that was a large study done from a life after cancer epidemiology study. Right. So this is not just on a soapbox, but right. it is uh, kind of cumulative information. I think it's unfortunate that the large cancer organizations, for as much good as they do, they don't talk about this stuff. They Maybe they can't. Maybe. Mm. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, it's not just breast cancer, though. Ovarian cancer is another big one. Right. And ovarian cancer, the other, you know, reproductive organs, you know, these 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 parts of our bodies are so sensitive to change. Um, so you know, there was a study, the Iowa Women's Health Study. They found that women who consume more than one glass of milk per day had a blank percent greater chance of developing ovarian cancer. Again, I need to abstain from answering. 73%. 73%. Mm. 
Mm. One glass of milk. And, you know, that's just one study. Right. When you dig into this, as a well-informed researcher, clinician, parent, friend, brother, sister, these numbers are continuously coming up uh, to show the increased link between dairy products and ovarian cancer. I'm a visual kind of guy. So when you throw stats like that out, like I immediately kind of picture a, a pie chart in my mind. And so you're oh, yeah. talking about a 73% risk, uh, increased risk of developing ovarian cancer. And then if you think about that, you close your eyes and you picture a pie chart, three quarters of that will be shaded in. That's a lot of pie. That's a lot of pie. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how else to put that. I mean, again, that's we're, we're not talking about small levels here. I mean, we are talking about serious, serious levels. What was it 81% um, for, for men there and then, you know, three quarters here for the ovarian? I mean, it's just... Anything more than 50, you know, when you're looking at when we're looking at research to statistically significant outcomes, Mm -hmm. most oftentimes researchers are doing backflips over things like 30 percent difference and, you know, 15. That's great. But when you see anything in this range that there is a 70 percent increased risk, that's something to follow. That's what a responsible researcher needs to kind of when if you smell that you, you find what the source is. Right. Um, the the other big thing, uh, aside from cancer, is um, we actually hear this one quite a lot. I'm I'm lactose intolerant. Mm-hmm. I can't drink milk. Okay, well, you're still eating cheese. You you know still eating pizza. All yeah. that good stuff. <laughs> you think the lactose is not there because it's not milk? Yeah. Um, it, here's a question I've kind of always wondered. I've always assumed that it is a very high percentage of the population that is in fact lactose intolerant yeah is is I, i'm i'm right with that right yeah yeah i loved learning that when i was a kid it made me feel a lot more normal okay so more than 70 about 60 to 70 percent of americans are lactose intolerant right so that's more people being lactose intolerant than not right so that you know i was like oh phew most people are. But when we're looking, when we break that down even further into different types of um, different different groups of Americans, like let's say Asian Americans, right? 94% are lactose intolerant. 74% Native Americans. 70% of African Americans. 53% of Mexican Americans. And According to some statistics, 15% of Caucasians, you add all of those numbers up, we've got a really big pie for that one as well. Yeah. Come to think, I'm trying to think of Asian dishes that have cheese in them. And for, I'm just, nothing's really popping into my mind. Yeah. Right if, if you were on Chopped and you put some type of dairy product in an Asian dish, I think that you would totally get chopped that does doesn't that doesn't jive so here's a funny thing even if you are lactose intolerant i as crazy as this sounds ali i really kind of hypothesize that you may not even kind of realize it you'll just have these symptoms these nasty icky ooey symptoms like run through real quick before we move on like (laughs) what what kind of nastiness comes from the lactose intolerance because it's not pretty well i mean with you using the word ooey i think that (laughs) 
that's very descriptive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, lactose intolerance, the symptoms are just general gastrointestinal distress, diarrhea, flatulence. Um, you you just have a lot of gas, really, mm. because you do not have the enzyme that can break down that milk sugar. Right. So it it will completely go through your digestive system and just hang out there and gather bacteria and cause a lot of foul-smelling uh, gas, to right. be specific. So not necessarily deadly like uh, like cancer, but certainly um, not something that you want to play with. No, and it's not very helpful for a quality-of-life experience. There you go. Yeah. There you go. That, that's that 81% again. Right. If, if you could have an 81% better quality of life. And and here's the cool thing. By eliminating dairy from your diet, you can 100% eliminate the risk of having symptoms of being lactose intolerant. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a cure. Can that's we say that? At 100%, we absolutely can. <laughs> this is where food is medicine. Yes. No pill needed. Um, so we've covered cancer. We've canc- uh, covered diabetes. Um no, no, we have diabetes. not. We we have not touched on diabetes yet. That that's another like again. I mean, this is a chronic illness that is tied to dairy. Mm-hmm. What's the link there? Uh, okay, so when it comes to dairy and diabetes, uh, there are two different you know kind. There's two different worlds of diabetes that are most typically discussed: type one, which is from birth, and uh, type two, which is uh, used to be called adult onset diabetes. Now it's just type two diabetes because we're seeing it everywhere, right. um, even in children. Um, but what what we're seeing for the type one diabetics. Um, we're able to see that now in research with it being linked to uh, the consumption of dairy products in infancy. Mm. Uh, so I, I know my wife always talks about, well, my mom just gave me a bottle of milk, you yeah. know, and, and it wasn't formula. I mean, it was literally, I'm sure, just like whole milk that she got from the store. She's yeah. like, eh, it turned out fine. It's like, okay, well, I'm really glad to hear that. Right. But I mean, that, you you were seriously like walking a really fine line. You could have gone down a dark, dark road there. And I think for a lot of people, I mean, when you're considering the amount of, of infants and children and, you know, the amount of dairy that is being pushed through different organizations, you know, within the healthcare system, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're, they're told that they have to give their infants dairy milk. I mean, that if they are not, then they are putting their child at a nutritional risk. But um, there was a study that was done that showed that with with infants, that there was a 30% reduction in the incidence of type 1 diabetes um, for those who avoided cow's milk protein for the, the, the first three months of life. 30%? 30%. So, again, stick statistically significant change. Three. Again, yeah. picture the pie chart. That's right. a third of the pie. So that's another thing. If, if researchers are starting to smell that clue, to it would be very responsible, again, to start to source why. Why is it a 30% decreased risk of type 1 diabetes? Mm-hmm. Type 1 is the one that we definitely don't want to have that relationship with that's a lifetime of taking insulin that's a lifetime of comp- cardiovascular complications and unfortunately it can be a lifetime of 
um, just overall health risk. Now, I'm not sure if this pertains to diabetes, but I know in the research that I did leading up to this episode that even if the mother is breastfeeding, but she herself is consuming dairy products, that it can increase the risk of of certain ailments with that child, specifically colic. Uh Isn't that that crazy? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of research being done um, recently uh, on uh, the effects of what the mother is consuming during pregnancy. I think it's really wise to be um, learning more about that and how it pertains to type 1 diabetes for infants. I think that's really important. And and sticking with the kid theme here, um, consumption of dairy, their risks for developing chronic ailments are the same as they are for an adult. I mean, not just talking about diabetes. I mean, we're talking about young people now increasing the risk of heart disease. And certainly we've seen the spike in obesity in in the country. Um, Not 100% attributed to dairy, but again, a significant amount of it. Yeah. It's it's just mind-blowing. And... Man, you know, when I was overweight, I used to think that I was doing good if I was uh, drinking a diet soda. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also doing good if I was drinking low fat or skim milk. Um, really, as far as lowering the risk of, of being overweight and lowering the risk of obesity, there's not a big difference between whether or not you're drinking 1% versus whole milk. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I mean, that's something that I think the I mean, when you look at calorie per calorie, mm-hmm. you get less calories if you are consuming skim milk. Right. So therefore, it makes sense that when folks try to tout the health benefits mm-hmm. of low-fat dairy, they could rationally say that it could decrease obesity because really, if you zoom into that statement, it's because they're consuming less calories. Right. It's not the milk itself that prevented the obesity. Right. The milk had nothing to do with it. Right. Best choice is to get rid of it entirely. It's a non-nutritive source of calories. I mean, in in my understanding. Um, And it's best best choice is to get rid of it entirely. And I believe that Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, there are actually like a, a big organ. The uh, American Academy of Pediatrics is saying like, don't give it to kids. Period. Until they're how old? So for for children, uh, they're recommended to avoid uh, dairy milk uh, by within the first year of life. Right. So if you're an infant, and you're drinking whole milk. There are there they are showing that there is an increased risk over time. Diabetes, obesity, heart disease. If you last a year without having milk, I say, why introduce it at all? But hey, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it's, kids don't know about anything until it's introduced. I, you know, why then would you introduce it? That's like, well, my kid hasn't had a cigarette in his first year of life, <laughs> so well, happy first birthday, oh Junior. God. Have a, you know, you yeah. Know. Come on now, it's it's no different. Um, And again, just like adults, nasty side effects, constipation can happen with kids, too, if you drink a whole lot of milk Mm -hmm. or eat a whole lot of cheese. Yeah, constipation is a huge problem with with, with age people, ages all over the gambit. But when it's for children, if they're suffering from constipation and lactose intolerance, Mm -hmm. you know, that that's their social life right there. Yeah. Um, And let's let's wrap with this. I, I kind of just that. Ew, like you would never think that 
this stuff is actually what you're consuming, but it goes beyond just the milk. It goes mm-hmm. beyond the lactose. It goes beyond. I mean, there's just a lot of garbage in there, like Stuff. outside pollutants that you would want nothing to do with. Um, you, you've studied up a little bit on that. Well, you know, aside from the milk, what's in milk? So what's in milk? So uh, one of the first things that I, I definitely found to be new information for me mm-hmm. was something called melamine, which is often found in plastics. Uh, melamine is something that has been shown to negatively affect your kidney function and your urinary tract due to its high nitrogen content. Ew. Why is that in there? Um, another component that I think most folks would be you know, surprised to hear about could be that there is actually PCBs or polychlorinated biphenyls. Um, pesticides and dioxins. Right. So for those who are really trying to seek out a more organic or a more clean, quote unquote, clean right. eating. Right. Of course. What are those things? Mm. You can stop the conversation right there. Sure. Because they sound like science words. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I don't want to eat that. No. Um, yeah. Uh, antibiotics. I mean, that obviously is a big one. Right. I mean, for those, again, there is such a big call to action on trying to decrease the amount of antibiotics, growth hormones, things like that in dairy products, that they're trying to create different milk products that advertise that they've eliminated this. Mm -hmm. But why bother in the first place? That's a fine question that you posed there, young lady. Um, what else in there? It's something like a dioxin and, and like we get a high level of that. Like what is this? The note here. One fourth to half of all your dietary intake of dioxin mm-hmm. comes from dairy products. Yeah. Um, what is the danger of a dioxin other than it just sounds very nefarious? Right. <laughs> Dioxins affect your immune system. Okay. They affect your reproductive system and they affect your central nervous system. It throws the balances of your of these systems out of whack. When those systems are out of whack, that's going to affect their overall functioning capabilities. Right. That can increase your level of inflammation, stress, inflammation, inflammation, stress, <laughs> right. inflammation. Yeah, stress. kind of. Those are some big words. I think a lot of people can really take to heart when they hear. Um, you know what a dioxin could potentially do in your body it throws your system it, it's a throwing a wrench in your gears and your body has to try to work its way around it mm. but why give your body that obstacle in the first place if you want your body to be a well-oiled machine if you want it to run efficiently avoid disease recover and heal you want less of those obstacles in your way uh also tied to cancer right those dioxins right yeah yeah Yeah. throws the whole body out of whack Uh, we we could go on and on and on and on but the bottom line is this everything that we've talked about is up on pcrm.org do yourself a favor and in the search box it's on the top left portion of that website uh, type in health concerns about dairy and that is a four-page pamphlet that you can pull up and it will really kind of open your eyes to a lot of things. We've touched on just a little bit of it here today. Um, that's where we pulled a lot of this information from. But 
this the amount of studies that are cited in here there are 52 citations um all of which are accredited studies um it's just it's it's mind-blowing and yet this is big business as we're going to continue to find out here in just a second with uh, our vp of legal affairs mark kennedy um that is is literally kind of being shoved down our throat yeah. and uh it's it's time for change it's time for people to kind of wise up that's it yeah, yeah. get get to this document for sure ali lunning thank you so much for coming on of it course. Is always a pleasure super fun all right mark kennedy right after this on the exam room brought to you by the physicians committee was always fun having Allie on the show. She is so good, so knowledgeable. The dangers of dairy. Uh, welcoming back to the program now, the Vice President of Legal Affairs here at the Physicians Committee, Mark Kennedy. Uh, real quick, give the show, the Physicians Committee, a follow on Twitter at PCRM. Hop on Facebook, if you dare, right now, and like them as well. We always have a ton of good content up there. But what I was talking about earlier, the effect of the government's involvement with the dairy industry and the restaurants that Americans eat at the most is mind-blowing. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again right now just to reset. You cannot turn anywhere without seeing the effects of this program. Matter of fact, if you're not plant-based, I can virtually assure you that within the last few days – you uh, have felt the effect personally of this program. So uh, we are going to talk now specifically about these partnerships. We talked about the history of it uh, and the Physicians Committee's uh, legal interaction, uh, involvement in this, and, and uh, helping sort out some of the false advertising in the milk industry. But now let's talk about DMI, Dairy Management Inc. Let's talk about their involvement with the major chains out there. We're talking about Domino's. We're talking about Pizza Hut. We're talking about McDonald's, Wendy's. I mean, you name it, there's an involvement there. So you touched a little bit on it earlier. I mean, this is a true collaboration with the government and these restaurants. So how is this whole thing working? For the dairy industry, it's working very well. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, you know, I mentioned these the initial FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests we did a very long time ago. And at the time, we were discovering relationships with restaurants that were very small amounts by comparison to what came later. You know, maybe 8,000 here, 15,000 there, 40,000, 100,000. Mm-hmm. But now the numbers are in the millions. And you might have heard there was one uh, maybe five, six years ago in which – Domino's got $12 million from the dairy checkoff via DMI, Dairy mm-hmm. Management Inc., to develop and release new products. And I have a list here. I mean, I can read you, if you don't mind, I can read you some of the crazy product names and what they they, they <laughs> what they include going back literally 20 years. Bring it on, because I'm sure that I'll recognize at least a few of them, so, so will the people listening. All right. Well, you know, one of the early partnerships was with Pizza Hut, but of course, because of course, you know, cheese has it's well, it is pretty much all cheese, right? So there was a thing called the Insider Pizza. This came out around 2000, and it had one pound of cheese. And in that same year, DMI had worked with Burger King, gave them forty thousand dollars for the honor to develop new programs and products for Burger King. At Wendy's, the following year. There was a similar uh, promotion, 
and Taco Bell, the three cheese blend, Pizza Hut, the ultimate cheese pizza, which mm. featured six different types of cheese. I remember that one. And 50% more pizza mm. or cheese than the average pizza. Mm-hmm. Burger King introduced the extreme double cheeseburger and the spice and Cajun cheeseburger. Wendy's introduced the chicken mozzarella supreme. All of these product names, these came right out of the program. Uh, the next year, Taco Bell, steak quesadilla with an average of eight times more cheese than any other item had on the menu at the time. 2003, Wendy's to develop the Wild Mountain Chicken Sandwich and the Wild Mountain Bacon Cheeseburger. And with all these things, you know, they sound relatively routine, but the idea was that Dairy Management Inc. had said, look, why don't you stick on two or three slices of cheese because just having one slice of cheese is not enough. We're going we're gonna to push more cheese this way. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if Wendy sells more cheese, the producers are happy and other restaurants might fall in line. So it keeps going. Uh, the Cheesy Bites pizza. Remember that one? I think it was the one with... Oh, the- yeah, uh, you like little cheese-filled almost <laughs> breadsticks as a crust or something right. like that? That was a 2006 Pizza Hut uh, partnership with the Dairy Checkoff. Here's another one um, a little earlier, 2005, the Cheesy Bacon Tender Crisp Chicken Sandwich and the Cheesy Bacon Angus Steak Burger, both from Burger King, I each featuring my, three slices. I feel my arteries clogging just talking about mm-hmm. that. Uh, some of the Domino's partnerships kicked in uh, around 2007, and I see the Cheesy Garlic Bread Pizza at Domino's. Mm-hmm. The... Um, a couple specialty pizzas, and, and the idea was, and this is a phrase from one of the partnership presentations, lifelong pizza lovers, parentheses, and therefore cheese consumers. <laughs> I mentioned the, the $12 million marketing support. That actually was 2009. After that, you have more McDonald's uh, steak and egg burrito in 2010, another Pizza Hut promotion in 2010, and on and on and on. And what we saw was that by 2011 – there were six full-time DMI employees who just sat in the McDonald's headquarters in Illinois thinking of new products to mm. sell. And this is, you know, this is all for a, a, what was once considered a generic advertising program when it was originally conceived. Now you have all the producers of all dairy products in the nation actually funneling their money into, among other things, six people who just sit at McDonald's all day. A cheesy think tank. Interesting. Indeed. I think one of my favorite campaigns uh, is just horrific. Uh, you remember this one, Wendy's Summer of Cheese. It's <laughs> a summer I don't want to remember. I mean, seriously. <laughs> but I, I remember, I, I wish I had the stats in front of me, but it was something like they, they sold, uh, it had to have been more than a ton of additional cheese that summer. Like, this was a ridiculously effective campaign. That's right. And that's kind of the concept. They, the um, the checkoff programs think in terms of pounds and dollars. And so there was this thing, the Wendy Cheddar Lovers Bacon Cheeseburger. And I think you may have talked about the stats before. Certainly Dr. Barnard has. Yeah. But 2.25 million pounds of cheese there it is. went through that, that uh, product, oh, Three hundred, which you know equates to 380 tons of fat um, and 1.2 tons of cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And and as I said, you know, the idea with these is that there's there's going to be a benefit to the whole industry. And according to USDA, you know, publications promoting this stuff, the return on investment is something like 18 to 1. So everybody who's selling cheese wins. 
these restaurants just love this program. They're getting paid to have somebody else create these products for them, and their sales just shoot up. That's right. That's unbelievable. Um, but here's the thing. I, I mean, this is this is something that continues to this day. I know that Dr. Barnard recently had an op-ed in The Hill. We'll link off to that on PCRM.org slash podcast. Um, just this past February, the DMI partnered with Pizza Hut to add 25% more cheese to the company's pan pizza, uh, hoping to unload, get this, 150 million pounds of milk every year. And then, and then those think tankers up at McDonald's, they came up with, uh, what is this, a way to create 30% larger cheddar cheese slices for uh, McDonald's signature crafted recipe sandwiches and the egg white delight McMuffin. And because it's egg whites, you know, it's got to be healthy, mm. Mark. Yeah, that Un- just screams healthy. Unbelievable. So, so this beast shows no signs of slowing down. No. Why would it? You know, it's just a free fall. The funny thing is that it's so at odds with everybody's health recommendations, including the USDA's own health recommendations in the dietary guidelines. But there's this total disconnect, a conflict of interest in how these programs are are run. And you're right. It's just going to go on and on and on. A few of the checkoff programs actually have uh, a provision in the statute or sometimes in the regulations that say you cannot do any brand-specific advertising. Mm-hmm. And that you know goes back to the day when it was generic. But for these checkoff programs like the dairy checkoff that don't have that, uh, provision, you just have this fun free-for-all when really the people who are m- getting the most out of it are already the biggest corporations and sort of the worst health-wise. So we talk about this, and the interesting thing is I believe I saw a stat, it might have been in the New York Times, where overall consumption of dairy is down. Um Yet we still have these ridiculous campaigns. And I guess, I guess that's why you're seeing six people now at McDonald's headquarters working to try to get more cheese up there and keep that consumption up, stop this freefall. Hey, it was six in 2011. Who knows how many it is now? Maybe it's a dozen. (laughs) Touche, good sir. But but here's the thing. Uh, The cost is far more than on just people's health. I mean, this is hitting all of us right in the wallet. You know, you got to figure government funded. Where does government money come from? Taxes. It comes from you. It comes from me. Uh, New York Times, I pulled this stat before um, you came on. Um, the DMI budget in 2008 was $135 million. That is a lot of money. Yeah, and it went up. According to the 2015 reports that I looked at a little while ago, it was closer to 148,000. About 100 of that, 108 of that came from the dairy checkoff and another 40 from industry grants. Mm-hmm. So they're taking in lots of money to sell lots of cheese. On, uh, no signs of slowing down. Uh, what, are, what are you and the team currently working on? Um, what's, the, what's the latest happenings over there? We've got a, a lot of things going on. You know, the dietary guidelines are coming up. Right. And what we have found over the years is that these – this is kind of a new tactic. But part of the purpose of the Dairy Checkoff and all the other checkoff programs is research and promotion. He puts in air quotes. I did. And so on the research angle, their idea is in theory to just research the qualities of the product. But what they're really doing is designing studies in the spirit of 
the dairy weight loss study we talked about. And in the in the model, really, you know, small uh, participant groups and um, a lot of what they would call conflating factors. But anyway, the idea is to get results that show that their product is good for you. And then what happens at the dietary guidelines level is you have a panel of experts who are reviewing all the recent science. And wouldn't you know it, the industry is funding all this bogus science to get results that favor these products that are horrible. Mm. But often the people who are sitting on the advisory committee have industry ties and maybe some sort of, I don't know, could you say allegiance to the people who usually, you know, send their paycheck? Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is that some of these recommendations, some of the junk science is creeping into the actual recommendations and the dietary guidelines. So we are keeping tabs on on all that. We filed a petition Last year with USDA, we're like, look, we know you're reconsidering the whole dietary guidelines process. Like, here are things to think about. And Dr. Barnard had done this great analysis uh, of the way the egg checkoff had influenced the recommendations the last time around on cholesterol. And we just broke it all down. Here are the six methods that all these studies by checkoff programs follow to get a specific result. And then here's the way those results influence either federal nutrition programs or even just the general public. And this is why you can't let this stuff into the dietary guidelines process. And we're trying to get USDA to come around to that. But can you imagine trying to get USDA to ignore its own program? Yeah. It seems highly unlikely. Yeah. How's that wall that you're running into? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to get over. At the same time, we're monitoring, I mentioned earlier, state checkoff programs. Yeah, so this is something that a lot of people don't realize. Like uh, you said at the top of the program is that there are state checkoff programs. Everybody assumes federally funded. That's what gets 99% of the coverage. How does this vary state by state? What's the influence there? The biggest states, uh, California has a very big, um, I think it's milk, but it could be dairy in general. I'm not sure, but it's, it's milk checkoff is very big and very influential and came up with some of the most famous uh, slogans. In Texas, there's a Texas Beef Council that promotes beef and that's Mm -hmm. very popular. And then somewhere in the middle of the country, there's more of a focus again on milk and dairy. Now, right now, this is a little off topic, but we've been focusing a lot of effort recently on something that the Texas Beef Council has been doing to recommend beef consumption as a way to maintain maybe even lower cholesterol. Okay, well, that seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. you know, eat kind of the the highest cholesterol, worst, worst product for your heart, and maybe your heart will get better. Well, Mark, you know what you just did. You booked yourself for a future show <laughs> because uh, we have another one coming up uh, with summer coming uh, right around the corner about uh, grilling meats. Why that mm. also? Not the best idea yeah. in the world. So uh, that will be very, very interesting to hear me up. What, what we're up for with uh, deep in the heart of Texas there. Um, so is there a timeline at all that, that you think that we have here with the USDA nutritional guidelines and what it is we're trying to do there? In theory, this particular round of the dietary guidelines will wrap up probably around 2021. Mm-hmm. It's been very slow moving. We had a a basic model that the previous ones had followed, but this one is, is kind of a thing of its own as everything is lately. So it's unclear exactly how things are going to unfold, but uh, I know Dr. Barnard had a meeting with someone at USDA earlier this week and you know we're keeping tabs on everything we submitted comments and 
We'll just keep raising the issues. Well, I, I will tell you this. Uh, I, I want to end on an optimist note, and this is not based on any legal findings. This is not uh, anything other than my personal opinion, and that is uh, despite all of these hideous things that we just talked about, uh, overall we are trending upward as a health-conscious society. Um, the obesity rate may be rising, but I think that hopefully, knock on wood, we're reaching a, a tipping point where people's eyes are finally opening. And despite these efforts, I think that within the next couple of decades, we're going to start to see the obesity rate decline because despite all these, you know, the, the government involvement, the DMIs of the world, people are just, we're too smart for that. You can't pull the wool over our eyes any longer. And that is kind of the solace that I take from all of this. That'll be our last day on the job. <laughs> I don't think about that, man. I mean, come on, Perry Mason. There's always work for you, Mark. Uh, 20 years. I mean, you know, 20. That, that, besides, that's a good long run. You should be ready that's to retire. That's true. retire. Yeah, that's right. Live the good life. Uh, Mark Kennedy, Vice President, Legal Affairs here at the Physicians Committee. Thank you very much. Look forward to having you back on the program. Sounds great. All right. This is the Exam Room Podcast. I'm the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Dr. Barnard back to wrap things up in just a second. Well, that's amazing. It's Who would have thought all the ways that the industry and the government are working together to try to keep dairy front and center and, and about all the tremendous benefits of getting, in, getting away from it? Um, let me... Th- leave you with one more thought today, if you don't mind. There's only one reason why people push milk on their kids or think they need it for health, and that's calcium. And yet, cows don't actually make calcium. Calcium is an element. It's in the ground. And little bits of calcium get into the roots of grass, and they get into the the grass. The, The cow eats the grass, and the calcium gets into the cow's milk. And if you drink the milk, you get some calcium, and you absorb maybe a third of what, you, of what you've taken in. If instead you consume the plants directly, hopefully not grass, but broccoli or kale or collards or Brussels sprouts or whatever it is, these green vegetables get their calcium from the ground. You can eat it directly, and uh, you'll get the calcium that you need for good health. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs> 